So we've been in the series for a little while called Here is Our King. And what I want to start with today is the idea that we love rules. As people, as human beings, I think we love rules. Rules, um, now I know some of you don't like rules, and I'll get to you in just a little bit, but I'll tell you why all of us really like rules. Rules allow us to have a good, solid sense of where we stand with authority and where we stand with each other. If I have a good, solid set of rules, I know exactly where I stand with regard to God, where I stand with regard to you. Because ultimately, every one of us wants to say the phrase, well, I didn't do, and then we fill in the blank. You know, so no matter what it is that I did do, I can still say, well, I didn't do that. And that lack of doing that one thing because of the rules and the way we organize them, that gives me a pass over the other things that I did do. Or, or flip it, you know, I could say, I might have failed to do all these other things around the house, but I did the dishes yesterday, right? And so because I mentioned the one thing that I successfully did, now all of a sudden I'm absolved from all the things I, I didn't do. The only way that kind of system works is if we live in a system of rules, And if we can rank the rules, and some rules are more important than others, and some rules are less important than others, and if we live in a system where we get the rules and we can rank the rules, then we know where we stand with authority, we know where we stand with each other, we know where we stand even with God. That's one of the reasons why we love rules. At the same time, though, we hate rules. And the thing that makes us hate rules is whenever the rule interferes with my life or my desires. Anytime the rule interferes with my desires, we don't like it so much, right? Because when the rule interferes with my desires, now it's in the way of me and I can't use the rule to give me a sense of security over where I stand in relationship to God and others. Now the rule is kind of bugging me. And in both of these cases, what we want is we want a strong leader who's on our side. Because, see, we want a leader who's strong enough to make rules and enforce them so that we can point our finger at other people and feel justified in ourselves. That person did the wrong thing. I did the right thing. We want a strong leader who sets up strong rules like that. At the same time, we want that leader to be on our side. Because if that leader's on our side, then most of the rules that leader makes are going to be rules that already fit with my life, that already fit with who I am and who I want to be and my desires. And so that's why, because of our love-hate relationship with rules, we want strong leaders who are on our side. Now, if you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, you know that we've been talking about Jesus as the king. He is the king above all other kings. Matthew, in his book that he writes, is the first what we call gospel in the New Testament. It's the first story of Jesus written that is contained in the New Testament. Matthew is writing to like super Jews, and he gives them all sorts of code words and code language so that they can understand Jesus is the great king. Jesus is better than King David. He's three times as good as the great King David, we learned. And so just going through some review here, we would say that Jesus is the great king, and he's the king of glory and suffering. 
He's the king of victory through selflessness. He expands the borders of blessing and his citizens humbly bless the world. These are some of the things we've covered so far. That Jesus is the king above all other kings. That even though he's the king above all other kings, he's a symbol of glory and suffering together. We also talked about how Jesus gives of himself and that's how he wins his victories. We also learned that Jesus is the one who expands blessing to reach people it hadn't reached before, and that Jesus is the one who calls his citizens to be agents of blessing in the world. And the biggest picture that we've learned so far is that Jesus, even though he is the king of kings, one, he's not the king you expected. Where you want strength, he shows weakness. And number two, He's not on your side. He's on his side. And the demand is for us to get on his side. But what about rules? If we want a king, we want a king who's going to set up really good, solid rules that we can live with and that help us understand who we are, who the people around us are. And if you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, you've realized that Jesus hasn't done that yet. Last week, we found Jesus on a mountain, and he was beginning to give a sermon, a speech that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And as Jesus is beginning to do that, he starts with a list. And it's pretty clear that Matthew is writing, because he's writing to super Jews, it's pretty clear that he's writing this thing on the mountain to try to help us see that Jesus is like the new Moses. Jesus is a king like David, better than David, and Jesus is a prophet like Moses, but better than Moses. And so Jesus is taking on that kind of role, but there's a problem. When Moses is on the mountain, the voice of God speaks a list of ten commandments. When Jesus is on the mountain, the voice of Jesus speaks a list of eight blessings, eight things we call beatitudes, or identifications of God's connection with a person. When these things are true about a person, that's evidence that God has connected with that person and through that person. We want a king who brings rules, and this king doesn't. At the very beginning of the thing that sounds like a law-giving kind of environment, he doesn't give commands. Well, if you were looking for a Jesus who gives commands, then you're in luck because today we're going to get that. Today we're finally going to get Jesus, the king, giving us some rules and laying out some ground ground rules for his citizens. But if you were hoping to find Jesus as the lawgiver, then you're also going to be disappointed today because the rules he gives today come with a huge twist, a huge twist that won't make you feel comfortable. And the only way to really talk about it is to walk you through it. So join me. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. And I'm just going to start off with the thing you need to learn. Jesus fulfills and filters the Old Testament. Remember, we talked last week about how he's the new prophet, just like Moses. And so immediately your thoughts should be going to, okay, so what do we do with the Old Testament law? If Jesus is the new Moses, then do we get to throw out the Old Testament and we're starting over with Jesus? Or what do we do with the Old Testament? And the first thing that Jesus tells us when he's ready to give his law is that he fulfills and filters 
the Old Testament law. Take a look at this. He says, do not think. What that means is he thinks you might be thinking it. Jesus has just given the Beatitudes and you hear all that and there are no commands in there. Jesus tells you to be salt and light, but he doesn't say you have to be salt and light. He says you are salt and light. So that's not a command either. And so maybe at this point in time, Jesus is thinking, you are a, are a king who's not giving us any rules. And so he says, no, no, hang on a second. Don't think I've come to get rid of rules. Don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I'm going to come back to that word in just a little bit. What does it mean for Jesus to have fulfilled the law or the prophets? But his point here is that he is not going to throw them out. He is there to fulfill them. We'll come back to that, but finish the verse. He says this, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. There's a part of this verse that I don't understand. And I've read scholars, I've read commentaries on it, and I, I still don't really understand it. And it's the part that he gives two until phrases. The first phrase is until heaven and earth disappear. And the second phrase is until everything's accomplished. And, and before heaven and earth disappear, before everything is accomplished, there is not going to be a single bit of the Old Testament. Now, just you know, by way of explanation, whenever you read in the New Testament the word law or the words law and prophets or the words law and writings and prophets... In almost every case, the person is referring to the entirety of the Old Testament. We think that law refers to like the first five books and the prophets are at the end of the Old Testament. But back then, they used the word law by itself to refer to the whole Old Testament. Or they used the word law and prophets together to refer to the whole Old Testament. They almost always were just referring to the whole Old Testament. And so here, Jesus is saying... The entirety of the Old Testament, the entirety of the Hebrew Scriptures, for them, the entirety of all the Scriptures they had will last until heaven and earth disappear, until everything is accomplished. Now, does that mean that they're going to last in two different ways for two different untils? No, I think the best way of understanding it, even though I, I don't fully understand it, is that he's just simply saying heaven and earth disappearing is the moment when everything is accomplished. Because everything means everything. And so if everything is accomplished, that means we no longer need what heaven and hell are. We no longer need what heaven and earth are. That all the heaven, the earth, all that stuff, it's all going to disappear. The old order of things is going away because it's done. It's accomplished. It's finished. So the best way I can understand this is for all of your conscious existence until God says the old is fully done, the Old Testament still applies. Some people like to say that everything accomplished just means when Jesus died on the cross and he said it is finished. And then when Jesus said on the cross it is finished, that's when the Old Testament can pass away. But I don't think so because it doesn't fit with the other phrase here, until heaven and earth disappear. So the bottom line is this. The Old Testament's still around. should still be read. It still exists. Not a single bit of it can be removed. That's important. But now let's ask the question of what does it mean that Jesus says he fulfills it? 
It's one thing for us to say it's still around, but we still need to know what does it mean that Jesus fulfills it? How does that apply to you and to me? Well, again, there's a lot of debate. I read a a commentary on this, and it listed off a whole bunch of different options that people were giving for what it means that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law. But honestly, the best one that I can think of is just paying attention to what Matthew says when he uses the word fulfill. Because after all, Matthew was the one writing down what Jesus said, and so Matthew is the one who best understands what Jesus meant, and Matthew chose to use the word fulfill. So how else does Matthew use the word fulfill? Well, check it out. I'll give you a few examples. In verse 22 of chapter 1, he says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. In chapter 2, he said uh, that Jesus stayed in Egypt till the death of Herod, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. In verse 17, it says, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Or then in Matthew 2, uh, 23, it says, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. Now, this is interesting because as we talked about a couple weeks ago, there is no Old Testament prophecy that says Jesus would be called a Nazarene. The only way to understand this word fulfilled is to take all of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, lump them together, and recognize that the Messiah would be rejected. And in Jesus' day, people from Nazareth were rejected. And so you have to go this, this other link where it's the concept of rejection that makes Nazarene a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. In other words, what I'm saying is, Matthew uses the word fulfilled not just to talk about a prophet that says a thing will happen and then the thing happening literally the exact same way. Matthew uses the word fulfilled to say the Old Testament stuff leads us to an understanding and that understanding finds a realization in Jesus. The best way of understanding Jesus' own words, I think, goes like this. I don't have a whiteboard, but I thought that might be fun, and so I drew a whiteboard diagram for you, and I just, I used a a pen on, on my computer, and I thought this might be fun. So the law and the prophets. Jesus is talking about the law and the prophets, but he says that he fulfills them. He has come to fulfill them. That means that what you should think about is that the law and the prophets are like these, these bookends around the Old Testament. It includes everything in the Old Testament. And the law is like the list of the things that you're supposed to do and and not do. The prophets are like the interpretation of the law towards the people who were not doing it and, and they needed some guidance. And so here's the law and the prophets. Here's the law and the prophets. And they both point towards Jesus and he is the goal. That's another way of thinking about the word fulfilled. Jesus is the goal of everything in the Old Testament. So whatever you find in the Old Testament... It is pointing towards Jesus. Something about that is pointing towards, leading towards Jesus, and something about Jesus' life fulfills it. As if everything in the Old Testament was just one gigantic prophecy that Jesus fulfills. I think that's the best way of understanding what Jesus means when he says, fulfill. I think that's the best way of understanding what Matthew was trying to communicate when he quotes Jesus as saying, fulfill. But that means that Jesus has one more function. 
He's not just the one who fulfills it as, as the goal of it. He's also the one who filters it. He's the one who then leads you to the new understanding of it. Because, see, if the Old Testament law is fulfilled in Jesus, then everything that comes out of Jesus is a new understanding, a new filtering of that Old Testament law. Does that make sense? So Jesus is the fulfillment of, and he's also the filter of. People ask me, well, what about the Old Testament commands? What about the specific Old Testament commands that say this, this, or the other thing? And in every case, I give the same basic answer. How does Jesus fulfill that? And how does the New Testament filter it? How does Jesus filter that thing? And then what do we do with it? It it becomes like a new law. Okay, so that's what Jesus is doing. But we're still left with a question. If Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, does that mean we get to throw it away? No. Unless you want to throw Jesus away. Because Jesus is the fulfillment, right? So if you have Jesus, you have the Old Testament. If you have Jesus, you have everything in the Old Testament. Every single dot, every single detail, every single aspect in the Old Testament. If you have Jesus, you have that part of the Old Testament too. So you can't throw out the Old Testament. But you also can't separate the Old Testament from Jesus. You have to view it through the filter, through the lens of what Jesus is and what he says and what he taught. And immediately after this, Jesus is going to begin to teach us. And he's going to say things like this. You've heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus is embracing this idea that there was an old and he's now giving a new. You've heard it said, now I, filter, say to you. And Jesus does this in the next chapter a lot. But there's just one problem. When you see what Jesus actually does as the filter, he doesn't give a list of rules. Seriously. He doesn't give us a new list of rules. Instead, he describes perfection. And this is much worse. See, I want a list of rules so that I have permission to get away from doing some things. Because if I have a list of rules, then I can talk about the bigger things that I did, even though the smaller things I missed. I want the list of rules with the hierarchy. And you probably do too, because it gives you that sense of clarity and that sense of purpose. But when Jesus has the chance to say, it was said, but I say to you, he describes something and he demands perfection. Let me show you what I mean. The very next verse, Jesus says, therefore, right? Therefore, of course, the the trick that pastors always do, it's therefore proving whatever the previous thing was, or it's therefore responding to whatever the previous thing was. So Jesus says, therefore, because I just told you that I'm the fulfillment, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I've got to pause there for a little bit. I kid you not, I have had a very difficult time understanding this verse too. Because this verse has always basically communicated to me that you have to keep every single tiny detail in the Old Testament. 
And if you don't keep every single tiny detail in the Old Testament, then you're going to be in trouble. But I want to invite you to join me today in noticing a detail that I never noticed until literally this week. Jesus says, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Do you see those two words? Now notice with me, they're still in the kingdom of heaven, right? They're still in the kingdom. They haven't been kicked out of the kingdom. But which commands did they break? One of the big ones or one of the little ones? This is fascinating to me. Jesus says, you could keep all of the big commands perfectly, but if you miss the least command, if you miss the least command, just one of the least commands, that takes you from where you were in the kingdom's hierarchy and ranking, whatever kind of kingdom hierarchy there is, uh, we don't really know. The Bible doesn't give us a ton of detail on that. But whatever kind of kingdom hierarchy there is, you get moved to the bottom if you miss one of the least commands. Do you see that? The person who misses the least of the commands, the one of the least of those commands, and teaches others will become the least in the kingdom. That's perfection he's talking about. Jesus says you get one mistake. You make one mistake. You miss one of the least commands and you drop down to the bottom of the kingdom standing. That's an incredibly high standard. And then, of course, he says, but if you practice and teach them, if you practice these commands and you teach these commands, then you get to be great. There are only two categories, really, in the kingdom. There's the great ones, and then there's the least. And the great ones do everything perfectly, and the least are the ones who make one mistake. That's a pretty interesting claim that he's making there, right? But what he's talking about here is not a detail. Like, you've got one chance. No, it's bigger, because his bigger picture is that he's about perfection. Take a look at what he says next. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And wait a minute, hang on a second. Now he says there are going to be some people who don't get into the kingdom of heaven. Right? The, the person who does all the commands but misses one, they're the least. And the person who does all the commands, they're the great ones. Uh, but the people who, who can't even measure up to the Pharisees, who can't surpass the Pharisees, they don't even get in. You see, the Pharisees had a list. They had a set of rules. And according to the Apostle Paul, the goal of the Pharisee rules was to be faultless. Even to the point where the Apostle Paul said that he himself was faultless. Now, Paul also calls himself the greatest of all sinners. But he says when it comes to the Pharisee rules, he never missed one. And Jesus says that's not good enough. You can keep every one of the Pharisee rules perfectly. That's not perfect enough for me. It's almost as if Jesus is saying there is two, 
there are two options for you. You can be in the kingdom by being perfect, or everything else is out of the kingdom. With this one possible exception of that least command, whatever that least command might be. I think Jesus was just speaking that way to kind of exaggerate the point. But the question for you and me, so what do we do with it? Does Jesus really want us to be perfect? Yeah. Jesus says this in verse 48, be perfect therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. Man, that's such a big thing. I've never been able to be perfect at everything. I told you I'm really good at spelling, but this last week, there was a word that I didn't know, and I had to look it up. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I I don't know what to do with myself. And I, I spelled it one way, and it didn't look right, and I spelled it another way, and it didn't look right, and so I just decided I'm going to open up the dictionary on the Mac that I have and see what it gives me, but oh my goodness, it was such a, such a challenge on my soul to realize that when it comes to spelling, I'm not perfect. Oh my goodness, it's such a, such a wound to me. And maybe when you think of your own life and you think of your own perfection, you also recognize that you are incapable, and you also recognize that you are impoverished. And that if Jesus really wants, if he really wants perfection, there's no way you and I are getting in. If that's the case, I'm as poor as poor can be when it comes to my spiritual condition. Because if he wants perfection, I'm out. Well, I'm going to come back to this because this is verse 48. It's, it's the end of the passage we're looking at today. Right now, we've got to go through the stuff in the middle. What does perfection really look like? I mean, because even though Jesus isn't going to give us a list of the, the checklist that you can say, perfect, 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 since you made it to the bottom, you're also perfect, we still need to have an idea of what perfect is and what it's not. So the first thing Jesus says is that perfection is relational submission. These are my words, not his words, but I'm trying to summarize what he's doing in this next particular section. uh, Perfection is relational submission. When I submit myself to someone else with whom I'm in a relationship. Let me show you. Jesus says, you've heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Which, by the way, we love murder. I, I, I talk to people a lot who will say, I'm a good person. I've never killed anyone. And we love murder because murder is the one thing that none of us in this room have done. And so we can all pat ourselves on the back and be like, yup, I'm in that camp. I'm in the have never murdered someone camp. And as a result, I now feel like I'm a good person, right? People do that. I'm not a habitual liar. I don't get in fights all the time. I've never killed anyone. Murder is the greatest of the Ten Commandments for patting yourself on the back. And as a result, Jesus starts with that one. He says, you've heard people talk about murder. You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, filter. I'm now filtering this Old Testament thing so you can get the fulfillment of it. Anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. What is anger? Anger is that response to injustice. When you feel like an injustice has been done, anger is the natural response. You should know that God gets angry. 
because he's a God of justice. The Old Testament, sometimes the word used is wrath. That's a real strong, angry word. Jesus got angry. When he entered the temple and saw that there were all these people who were preventing the Gentiles from praying in there, he got mad at the economic and other motivations behind that racism, and he said, no, you're out of here. He kicked them all out, and he was angry, angry enough to make a whip and turn tables over, something we might consider violent or at least vandalism. Anger is not a problem, but Jesus says anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You see, I think what Jesus is talking about is he's talking about an angry with that takes this from the place of being okay into the place of being imperfect. Because anger with a person is intrinsically divisive and it's intrinsically selfish. Because if I get angry with you, what I'm saying to my own heart is that you have done me a disservice. You have done me wrong. You have done me an injustice. I deserved this, and you gave me this. And because I deserve this, and you gave me this, you didn't measure up to what I deserve, and as a result, I'm now angry with you. Because I deserve better, right? The reason we get angry with people is largely motivated by our own selfishness. And so Jesus says, if you get angry with a brother or sister, now you're subject to judgment. Well, what kind of judgment? Check it out. Let's go on to the next few lines. He says, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, I'm glad you guys are still in the room because I just uh, swore. I just used a four-letter Aramaic word. Um, I'll say it again, raka. Uh, but uh, I have no idea what it means. And I have no idea how offensive it would have been to Jesus' listeners, except to know that when Jesus said that word out loud, people were probably getting ready to leave the area. Because this was literally a four-letter word for them as much as it is for us. And this word is a word of contempt, a word of hatred, a word of disdain. And because it was such a bad word, if you said that word out loud, someone could take you to court. They could sue you. They could take you to court and they could have the courts adjudicate your situation. But Jesus says, fine, go ahead and say that word. You're just going to end up in court. But if you say this other thing, you fool, how many times have you thought in your heart, I'm not going to swear at that person, but I really hate their guts? How many times have you thought in your heart, listen, if they were here in the room, I would smile at them, but since they're not here in the room, I can just feel bad about them, be angry towards them. You would never say that particular swear word to the other person. But when you go home, you say, man, that guy's such a fool. Man, that lady's such an idiot. You're driving on the road, and the person pulls in front of you, and you're like, jerk! 
Yeah. I'm saying Jesus says the same thing every one of us has done. Except his consequences are different than anything we've ever thought of. Look at that. You will be in danger of the fire of hell. Swear at a person, they'll take you to court. Think in your heart they're a fool, you're going to hell. Whoa. Now, that might change the way you drive home today. That, that might change the way you interact on social media this week. That might change, at least I would hope it would change, because Jesus is saying, if you consider another person a fool, you are going to hell. Keep going. He says this, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Jesus is saying, listen, your relationship with this other person is more important than your sacrifice to God. I'll tell you what, if you have two sacrifices to make, sacrificing yourself before this other human being or sacrificing this lamb before God, you make the self-sacrifice first. But, but God, this other person did something wrong to me. But God, I don't really need to go after that other person. That other person, they've, they've cut themselves off from me. And, and Jesus would say, listen, if you remember that someone else has something against you, you make the sacrifice. Not to God yet, to them first. Then come back and offer your gift. Oh man, I gotta tell you, this is the one that bugs me the most because as a pastor, this command-ish, because it's not really a command, it's kind of a command, but as a pastor, for me, this one makes almost every Sunday unbearable. This one makes almost every Sunday impossible. And this one makes every single Sunday for me something that I have to reconsider over and over again. Because as a pastor, I have a lot of people in my past who don't like me. Who have been hurt by something I said in church or outside of church. And because I'm a pastor, they take the easy way out frequently and just kind of move along. Go to another church. And every Sunday, the, the list of names comes through my head of people that I remember have something against me, and I always wonder, is it okay for me to come and bring whatever gift I have to this environment? Or do I need to spend every single waking hour chasing after all of the people who have something against me? And I'm not going to give you an answer today. I'm going to give you a kind of an answer at the end of our time together today. Because this applies to all of us. The point Jesus is making, though, is un unmistakable. He wants you to submit yourself to other people around you. He says this, Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on your way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown in prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. This is just pragmatism, you know? Settle, or else you're going to end up in jail. But Jesus is still making the same point as with the other lines. This other guy is taking you to court. It's probably his fault. Doesn't matter, submit yourself. Doesn't matter, sacrifice yourself. It doesn't matter, this is a possible relationship. And when two human beings are in the relationship of any kind, you're the one who steps down. 
so the other one can step up. That's what Jesus is saying. In every case of human interaction, followers of Jesus step down so the other person can be lifted up. All three of these little command things come underneath that one heading. The next heading that we would say is Jesus is calling you to the perfection of internal purity. We love laws because laws allow us to be externally minded and motivated. Laws talk about things like divorce. But internal purity is something different. See what Jesus says, you've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. As a teenage boy, I was told this verse more times than I can remember. And all kinds of church environments, they would say, if you look at a girl lustfully, you've already committed adultery. And then the more um, cynical of us would say, well, if we've already committed adultery... Um, and, but then, of course, then you're going down a totally different path as well. The point that Jesus is making is that adultery in the law is a thing that you can avoid. But adultery in your heart is a thing you're already guilty of. Now, I know this sounds like it's talking to guys. But it's talking to women too. Whether your motivation is physical appearance, whether your motivation is something going on in a heart connection between you and this other person, or some imagined heart connection between you and another imaginary person. This applies to men and women. It's not just about what you see. Because Jesus' point is that what's inside of you needs purity. Jesus' point is that what's inside of you needs to be pure, not just how you live. The look can be the sin. Look what he says next. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble. He's talking literally about your eyes letting a sinful thought enter in through your head. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Your your purity happens on the inside of you, so it's okay for you to get rid of some of the body parts on the outside of you. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Now, pause for just a moment. I have never encouraged a single person to gouge out their eye or cut off their hand. And because the problem is not with your eye, the problem is with your heart. The heart that wanted the eye to see what it saw. The heart that responded to what the eye saw. And if you could eliminate sin by getting rid of your eyeballs, I would tell you to do it. But the truth of the matter is, it won't work. Because the problem is on the inside. If you could get rid of sin by cutting off your hands, I would tell you to do it, just like Jesus has said to do it. But... Of course, Jesus knew the problem wasn't with your hands. The problem was with your heart and what was on the inside. So yes, if your hand is causing your sin, gouge it out. But the problem is probably with your heart. You need to get your heart out of there. You need to find some solution to replace your heart with a better one. Maybe we'll hear Jesus talk about that in a little bit. 
But he says it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. I don't know if you paid attention to this so far, but he's mentioned hell a couple times. Hell's a real thing. Jesus is the one who teaches us about hell. The Old Testament doesn't teach us about hell. Jesus is the one who teaches us about hell. And it's a scary thing because he's talked about it twice. Call someone a fool, you're going to hell. Sin with your heart or with any one part of your body, you're going to hell. Okay, let's go on. Perfection is more. Perfection is also sexual integrity. Take a look at this verse. He says, it's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. People read this verse all the time. They'll tell me, pastor, you know, I've been divorced. Does that mean God doesn't love me? I've been divorced and I want to get remarried. Does that mean I can't get remarried or I shouldn't get remarried? And I got to tell you today, I can't give you all of the answers to all those things. I'm just going to tell you what Jesus said at this moment and what he meant by it, okay? Jesus is saying this, and by the way, the NIV, the translation that I'm using here, has translated the one word, uh, victim of adultery. It should just be the word adulteress. The NIV has added the word victim because they're trying to bring out a nuance of this passage that I think is right, just not all of the story. So I'm going to tell you what I think is really going on here. You see, Jesus is saying anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her an adulteress. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What does Jesus mean by this? Well, Jesus is trying to teach us about sexual integrity. Sexual integrity means... That everything about your sexuality comes underneath the one understanding of sex described in the Bible. Here it is. A man and wife for life. Done. That's it. That is the only definition of sexuality in the Bible. A man and wife for life. Change any one of those words and you no longer have the biblical definition of marriage or the biblical definition of sexuality. Change any one of those words and you no longer have the Bible's idea of what sexual integrity looks like. And if you change any of those words, the proper definition for what you now have is adultery. So let's walk through this just a little bit. Jesus says, anyone who divorces his wife, okay, If you divorce, then the third word has been eliminated for life. You still have man, you still have wife, but you no longer have life. You no longer have for life. And so as a result, the thing that you were in is not a marriage. It was a legal marriage that has now been ended by divorce. But it was never a real marriage because it didn't go man, wife, life. Jesus is saying any divorce is a definition that what you've had so far was adultery. And then he has this exception in there. He says, except for sexual immorality. Well, what is sexual immorality? Sex is now taken out of the one man, one wife for life, and now it's got another person in it. 
So it's one man, one wife, another person also for life, maybe, or not. And so then that has changed the words, and therefore it's also an adulterous relationship. See, here's the point Jesus is trying to make. Unless you've got one man, one wife for life, you don't have marriage. What you have is adultery. Sometimes that adultery starts while the legal marriage still exists, sexual immorality, an affair, something like that. Sometimes that um, legal definition ends at divorce, but the spiritual definition stays. Okay, so I have a sister who's been divorced and remarried. What would Jesus say about that? Is she perfect? Actually, I can't answer that. Was she perfect? No. Was her first marriage an adulterous relationship? Based on Jesus' definition, yes. Is her current marriage to be defined as adultery? Based on Jesus' definition, yes. Does Jesus want her to get divorced from this current man? He never tells us that. Did Jesus want to prevent her from getting married to this current man? He never tells us that. Can Jesus honor what the relationship that she's currently in? Absolutely yes. Can she be accepted into the kingdom of heaven? Absolutely yes. Because even though Jesus demands perfection... There's something else at the end of today that you cannot forget. And we're going to make it there in just a little bit, so hang on with me. The point is this. Anything less than perfect is sin. Roll with it, because that's the way it is. The next one that I would say, that Jesus said, is that perfection involves a verbal integrity. This one is easier to read, easier to explain, probably even harder to live. Check it out. He says again, you've heard it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill the, to the Lord the vows you've made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven for it's God's throne or by the earth for it's his footstool or by Jerusalem for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Jesus says every single time you try to convince someone that you're telling the truth, that is sin. It comes from the evil one. The only thing you should ever be able to say is yes or no. And if someone doesn't believe you and then you try to convince them, that's evidence that integrity somehow is lacking. Really quick example of this. When we say yes and the other person doesn't believe us, and then we say, no, seriously, yes, and the other person doesn't believe us. And then we say, no, I swear, and the other person doesn't believe us. And we say, no, I swear on whatever you come up with. And the other person's like, oh, okay, maybe I'll believe you. Something is wrong with that picture. And I'll tell you what's wrong with that picture. You are an unbelievable person. 
the person who is saying those words is not trustworthy as a person. Because let's just face it. If you were a trustworthy person and you said yes, everybody would just believe you. See, the problem is not with your using language to coerce someone into believing you. The problem is that you're an unbelievable person. And that I'm an unbelievable person. And that we have all lived lives where we have broken so many places of trust that we feel like we have to coerce and convince people into trusting us again. And Jesus says, no. That stuff comes from Satan. That stuff comes from the evil one. All right. There are a couple more here. Jesus says, perfection is sacrificial submission. This is the hardest one of all. He says, you've, or at least for us modern day, I think it might be the hardest one. He says, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. But wait a minute, Jesus. Don't I have the right to self-defense? Wait a minute, Jesus. Don't I have the right to stand up for my own rights? Wait a minute, Jesus. Don't I have the responsibility to protect my possessions? Wait a minute, Jesus. Don't I have to be the kind of person who takes care of myself? Because if I don't take care of myself, no one else will. Jesus says, if someone comes at you with a gun, let them do what they do. Jesus says, if someone calls you a name, let them do what they do. Jesus says, if someone asks you for something, let them have what they ask for. Jesus says, if someone demands something of you, let them have that and more. If someone wants to steal your wallet, dump out your purse. If someone wants to take your shirt, give them your car. If someone wants to control your home, let them have your life insurance policy. Jesus is saying, listen, here's the deal. You don't defend you. Perfection is not that. Perfection, according to Jesus, is sacrificial submission. And it's like, but wait a minute, Jesus, I don't understand how to do that in an evil world. It's difficult because I am not perfect. And I've never been perfect. And then on top of all that, Jesus adds this last little piece. He says, perfection is loving your enemies. Ah. Not only do I have to sacrifice my entire life for this other person, but I also have to love them. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, 
Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get are not even the tax collectors doing that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. You cannot listen to Jesus' words and come away with the sense that you're doing all right. You cannot listen to Jesus' words and come away and pat yourself on the back because you've kept the list. Or at least you've kept most of the list. Or at least you didn't murder anyone. Because in Jesus' mindset, all of these things are reasons for you to go to hell. Reasons for me to go to hell. And that's why he ends the whole thing with that idea that you aren't anything unless you're being like God. Jesus is saying perfection is when you look like God. Perfection is when you're like God in the flesh. Perfection is when people look at you and they're like, I don't understand that at all. It's like God has just taken up residence inside that person. Because Jesus says, be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, so we wanted a law. We, we wanted a king who would be strong. We wanted a king who would give us rules, rules that we could follow, rules that would help us understand our relationship with, uh, with God and us, rules that would help us understand our relationship with people and us. And what we got instead was a whole list of illustrations of how we are not perfect. And then this blanket claim that the only way to be really in the kingdom is to be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. I don't know about you, but part of me feels really depressed by that. But I want to show you something. Because I think everything we've talked about can be summarized and and made more clear with the use of three specific words. And those three specific words are behavior, character, and Jesus. Behavior is always less important than character. And character is always less important than Jesus. You might have what you consider to be a great character, but if it measures up to Jesus and it lacks something, then it's not there. Behavior is always less important than character. So you didn't murder anyone. Fine. Were you angry with someone? Behavior is always less important than character. Character is always less important than Jesus. But I want to ask you to take those little symbols and kind of turn them into arrows because the way Jesus teaches us is that behavior is the thing that leads to your character and character is what leads to you becoming more like Jesus behavior is the thing that leads to your character and character is the thing that leads to you becoming more like Jesus so at the end of all this Where does that leave us? What kind of person could you possibly be in the kingdom of heaven? What kind of person can I possibly be in the kingdom of heaven? Because as a matter of fact, the only way to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is to look like Jesus. And I am so, so, so short of that. 
If Jesus is, is what the model is, if Jesus is the goal, if he is the fulfillment and the filter through which I understand all of the Old Testament scripture, if Jesus is God in the flesh, if he is all of that, then he is the only rightful citizen of this kingdom. The king is the only one who can be in the kingdom. I feel completely inadequate. I feel completely impoverished. I feel that if my spirit were compared to Jesus' spirit, he would be rich and I would be poor. But didn't Jesus say something about people who were poor when it came to their spirit? He said this in chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the section we just looked at today, he was saying perfection is the key to the kingdom of heaven. But earlier he had said that just recognizing how poor you were was the key to the kingdom of heaven. And then he said in verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. They will be filled. The same basic Greek word that was used when Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. Everything that is Jesus, everything that is the Old Testament, everything that is righteousness and holiness and purity, all of that stuff can be poured into you. I don't know how you feel about all this stuff. Maybe you feel encouraged in some way. Maybe you feel really sort of beaten down in some way. But I want to give you the best good news I can give you in response to all this. Jesus demands perfection. And when he says be perfect, he means you sacrifice yourself instead of making someone else sacrifice for you. He means you live a life of such integrity that you never have to convince anyone that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. He says, you're going to be so perfect that when people look at you, they see God himself. Jesus says, that's who my citizens are. That's who you need to be. And maybe you feel beaten down by that. I know I certainly feel absolutely hopeless in a lot of ways when it comes to that. But then I recognize I still want it. I hunger and I thirst for that kind of righteousness. I'm not satisfied with just checking a box off a list and saying, I didn't murder anyone today, therefore I'm all right. I'm not satisfied with just not using the bad words towards the other person when I see them. I can't pat myself on the back and say, okay, I made it through another day without swearing or I made it through another day spelling everything correctly. That's not what I can do. I can't pat myself on the back for all of my tiny little momentary acts of possible perfection because Jesus' perfection is so much bigger and so much wider. But guess what? I want it. I hunger for it. I thirst for it. And I want his righteousness, not my own. I want everything he is. I want his perfection, not just my own. And when the world around me begins to pressure me into one of these areas where I have to make a decision between obedience or or something else, I need to say, wait a minute. What I hunger for is God's righteousness in me. And that means things like self-sacrifice, and that means things like not protecting myself, and that means all these other things. But guess what? If I live there, 
I'm the impoverished one who has the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And if I live there, in that place of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, then I have the promise that I will be filled. And I invite you to be there too. All you have to do today, if you recognize that you are poor in spirit, if you recognize that you can't possibly measure up to Jesus' standards of perfection, yeah, I encourage you to do some of these behaviors so that it will improve your character so that you will get more like Jesus. But before any of that, I ask you to be a person who comes to Jesus and says, I am poor. Who comes to Jesus and says, I hunger and thirst. Who comes to Jesus and says, I need you more than I need any of the lists. And you can do that just by saying, Jesus, I got nothing. Jesus, I've not been anywhere near perfect. Jesus, I am poor. And I need you. And Jesus, cleanse me. Forgive me. Help me to walk with you, to become more like you. And I choose to make you my king because I'm hungering and thirsting for what you bring. You can do that today. I encourage you to pray that in your own words and just say those things to Jesus. And if you do, let someone know. Let me know. Let someone else know in the chat, here in the room, by our Facebook group, whatever. Let us know that you are starting that journey and that you want to be a person who walks like Jesus because you're walking with Jesus. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, Check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.